welcome to episode number four of the Canadian Money Roadmap Podcast. This week's episode, we're going to be talking about post-secondary school and how to pay for it. Student loans, student lines of credit, and later on in the episode, I'm going to include an interview with a good friend of mine, Sam Dirksen, who's a PhD candidate at McGill, and he can provide some expertise on his experience paying for master's and PhD programs. So right off the bat, this episode isn't necessarily one that jumps off the page as relevant for everybody, but as the most recent McLean's study on the cost of education in Canada says, the vast majority of students attending university in Canada will receive the bulk of their funding from their parents. And so if you're a parent of a child or you know somebody that's going to school, I hope that this episode will be relevant to you. So I referenced that survey here And their study takes a look at all of the expenses and how people end up paying for them. So the average cost of post-secondary education in Canada is just under $20,000 a year. And so people say, oh, my tuition is only $6,000. Well, the cost of your school is comprised of much more than just your tuition. And the biggest one is actually rent. So if you're living at home, obviously it's a lot cheaper, but that's not new information there. But your tuition, groceries, traveling, books, and even commuting to and from school, depending on where you're living, extracurriculars, these things all add up when you go to university. It's not just the simple cost of your tuition that is going to be needed to be budgeted for. So keep some of those things in mind. Obviously, every school is going to be different. There's cheaper schools across the country. And if you travel internationally as well, your tuition is going to be much higher than what you'd expect locally here in Canada. Most students that attend university in Canada get the vast majority of the money for their school from their parents. Now, the silly thing is, is that very few of those same people reported that they were getting money from our ESPs. So parents, if you're listening and you're hoping to pay for your kid's school at some point, use an RESP because you get some federal grant money for it. And then that grant money can increase in value as well. So instead of you paying for all of it, put some of that money into an RESP as your child grows up, and then you can get some grant money along the way so that you're not footing the bill for the entirety of their school. Now, student loans is the other major way that people get funding for post-secondary education. Now, the the process and the amounts available are very different from province to province. There is an integration with the federal government there, but I'll just speak in generalities because these things change all the time. And looking at the most recent handbook is very different than my experience when I applied for student loans. So a few things that you want to keep in mind as it relates to student loans. First, your status as a dependent or independent student. Look at your provincial handbook before you apply for student loans to know where you fall. So it might relate to how many years you've been out of school, if you're still living at home, if you're attending a school in the same province as your parents where you live, things like that. That will have a big impact on how much of a student loan that you can actually get. Obviously, if you are just fresh out of high school and you're still living at home, then you're going to get a smaller loan because they anticipate your parents being able to help you with a lot of the living expenses. But if you're traveling across the country, you're a 25-year-old student just starting a program or starting a new program, you would be considered, say, an independent student, and then you'd qualify for more. 
Now, the second thing that you want to know before applying is what income requirements are required to be reported for your student loan. Again, like I mentioned, this has changed a lot over the years. So when I first applied for student loans, I had to report every asset that I owned, including my vehicle. And all of my assets were used to reduce what's called my financial need for school, which is silly because I needed a car, which was very affordable for me. It wasn't a luxurious car by any means, but I needed a car to get to and from school. But my financial need was reduced as a result of owning a car. Now, later on, as I applied the the following year, it changed to things like reporting my pre-study income. The problem with that is that at the time when I was going through school, I was actually a wedding photographer, so I was self-employed. But as many of you might know, buying cameras and computers and things like that can be very expensive. So my gross income, meaning that all the money that I brought in was relatively high, but my net income after expenses was quite low. So at that time, I had to report my gross income, which made it seem like I made scads of money over summer, which I didn't. And so then as a result, I didn't qualify for much of a student loan at all, which seems crazy. They wouldn't even lend me the money, even though I was in the program. But that was my experience. Now, closer to the end of my degree, they changed the process again, where I had to report my pre-study income. But I was able to report my expenses. But also there was a caveat in there where if you were deemed to be a full-time student during your pre-study period, and that was deemed to be three classes during the spring and summer semesters, you didn't have to report any income at all. And so the way that that worked is my financial need was actually more appropriately calculated. And as a result, I was bumped up above a threshold where I could qualify for some grants from the province. Now, it might feel like I'm kind of gaming the system there a little bit, but my point is that you need to understand the factors that are in place for student loans before you apply so there's no surprises. It's not good or bad to get a big loan or a small loan necessarily. You just don't want any surprises when it comes to your money because this is one of those major financial decisions that you're going to have to carry with you for a long time because you have to pay your student loan back. So jumping ahead to paying the loan back, going with a government student loan, they generally give you a six-month grace period where you don't have to start paying it back yet. But the main thing to keep in mind is that your interest starts accruing right away. Now, the current government has actually reduced interest rates to uh, the level prime, which is about 2.5% right now, which is very, very affordable. When I had my student loans, they're about 6%. And so the interest rate is quite low, which is very nice. It makes the burden of student loans much lower on people just coming out of school. Now, the benefit to a government student loan from the interest perspective is that they actually allow you to deduct your interest from your tax. So keep an eye out for your statement at the end of the year, and you can report that on your tax return uh, to make sure you get that deduction for the interest that you paid. So student loans, in terms of how they work, they usually send about half the money directly to your school to cover off the tuition. So they won't send you a lump sum check and say, go crazy. They're going to send a bunch of it to the school. And then the living expenses portion that they calculate will be sent to you monthly or sometimes quarterly. It depends on uh, how your province structures it, but it's less flexible that way. But in, in the same vein, it's better so that you don't get yourself into financial trouble by overspending on your student loans too quickly. Now, another way that people are able to fund their school if they don't qualify for student loans or they don't want a student loan or they want some more flexibility 
is you can go to a bank and you can apply for a student line of credit. And a student line of credit is very flexible, but it's not as easy to get necessarily because they take a look at your program and they assess your risk as to how reliable you'll be in paying back this loan. So professional programs like nursing, medicine, dentistry, things like that, it's very, very easy to get a line of credit from the bank. And in most cases, the bank is actually going to call you. So keep that in mind. If you get into any of these programs, the bank might call you and say, hey, we noticed that you're you were accepted into medicine. We'd like to offer you a quarter million dollar line of credit. And that's not hyperbole using that dollar figure. That's often the case for how much people can get from a professional student line of credit. So as you can imagine, I also know people that have bought fancy cars and new camera gear and all this kind of stuff from their line of credit as soon as you get it. So you really, really have to be careful and not put the cart before the horse. So because you're a first year med student, try to focus on the present when you don't have any income and not pre-spend too much money before you actually have it. So the student line of credit, your access to credit is granted immediately, which is, like I said, a blessing and a curse in a way. But your interest is also charged right away if you start to use it. In most cases, your interest is the only payment that you have to make. But depending on your bank, there may or may not be a grace period there. So throughout your term, you may have to pay for some interest along the way. Now, I talked about the interest being deductible on a student loan before. A student line of credit is not tax deductible. So you want to keep that in mind as well, especially if you're carrying a balance closer to that quarter million dollars. Um, you're not going to get any credits for that. So that's kind of the trade-off between student loans and a student line of credit. Now, if you do have the blessing of having an RESP set aside for you from your parents, I'm going to talk about this in a later episode, specifically about the details of RESPs. But if you are someone that is attending school and you know that there's RESP money available, the main thing that you'll need for that is something called your proof of enrollment. Now, this isn't a photo of your tuition receipt. This isn't a photo or a copy of your books receipt or anything like that. Your proof of enrollment is a specific document provided from your school. Okay, so the registrar's office is usually the one that provides it, but in most cases, this document's available online as well. So your financial institution that holds your RESP is going to need to know the details of your program, how many years it is, and a copy of your proof of enrollment before they will release money from the RESP. I'll get into more details, like I mentioned, in a future episode, but that's one thing that you want to keep in mind right away when it comes to an RESP for your school. Now, I'm going to cut to an interview that I did with a good friend of mine, Sam Dirksen, and he is a student at McGill, and he's going to provide a little bit of expertise as it relates to funding postgrad programs. Enjoy. So joining me today uh, in studio, or in my office more specifically, is Sam Dirksen. He's a PhD candidate at McGill University in Montreal, and he has more experience with master's programs and a PhD and how they get funded and uh, how you can possibly pay for it. So Sam, thanks for, for bringing your expertise to the Canadian Money Roadmap podcast. Thanks for having me, Ev. I'll try to share some of my experiences that I've had. I know expertise might be a bit much, but I'll share some of my experiences. Perfect. 
So when it comes to, maybe let's start with your master's program. Sure. Is it very similar in terms of an undergrad degree where there's a tuition cost and some people get student loans and then you just pay for it and you attend your class, you write your, your paper and, and so on and so forth. Is the process financially very similar to an undergrad or is it different? I think there are some similarities, but from my experiences, there is more funding available, especially nationally, specifically for master's programs through institutions like SHRC and NSERC that are... What yeah. do those stand for? So you know. SHRC <laughs> is the, on the spot. Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. And the NSERC is, this, is this just hard science equivalent of that, which I don't know the, the exact acronym for. But those those institutions provide master's funding for degrees. Departments do as well, in my experience. But I think that's the big change is that there are these big national um, awards that are available to students. And I guess we can get into that a bit later, but there you have to kind of get out ahead of those because the application dates are usually about a year before your program would start or at least kind of nine months. So being really prepared to apply for those is a big step in trying to get them. Gotcha. So if you're planning on doing a master's program right out of your undergrad, you need to start applying for these things pretty early on. That's right. So I went directly from my undergrad to my master's degree and I ended up applying for my Shirk master's funding in November of that last year of my undergraduate degree. So I had to be working on that alongside my kind of last year of classes. So I think there's a lot of value in getting as many applications as you can. So there's some master's programs that would be two years in which you would have a second opportunity to apply if you didn't get the the Shirk scholarship on the first on the first attempt, but it's good to give yourself that extra chance. And then also, you know, perhaps have in, in a PhD case, have multiple years of funding for those awards. Whereas the master's was a single year because there are a lot of programs, master's programs in Canada. that are just one year as well. So, yeah. Right. Okay. So you mentioned that it's a scholarship, so it's not a loan that you're getting from this institution. This is a non-repayable amount of money. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So, and it's non-taxable as well. So it goes on, a T220A or whatever the form is. And, and yeah, it's not taxable either. And it's just uh, most of them now they're paying in monthly, monthly increments. And yeah, I think that the master's scholarship for Shirk is sitting at just under $20,000 a year. Okay. And uh, so compared to your costs of the program, does that cover off half of it? 90% of it? 100%? Do you remember as far as a percentage of it, how much the scholarship ends up uh, covering for the tuition cost. Right. And of, of course, tuition would change um, depending where, on your program, on where you university. are and where your program and things like that. But from my experience, it, you know, it certainly covered the cost of the tuition for the, for the year that, that I received it. And then I had other funding for a second year of through the university, which we could talk about a bit more later, but, but yeah, it was enough to cover the tuition costs, but you know, living expenses, you know, it maybe wouldn't quite be enough. So you might want to work alongside that, do some TA work, something like that but still a significant amount of money you're getting to go to school. And I think that from my perspective, especially if you're doing a program that's not a professional, a professional degree, but a master's or PhD program that you want that extra funding to kind of get you through with less, less debt. Cause most people incur debt during their undergrad already. And so if you're adding on to that, that's hard. It's hard to pay down loans from your first degree and uh, pay for your second program simultaneously. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, going to university isn't a guaranteed ticket into a job, right? And master's PhD programs are no different than that. So yeah, like you mentioned, getting out of school 
with as little debt as possible is fantastic. So you mentioned scholarships as well. If you get a scholarship above and beyond your funding, I my understanding is that most scholarships can be used for whatever expenses you might incur, living expenses or otherwise. What was your experience like with scholarships? Yeah, so as I said, I, I mean, I've had scholarships going through both my degrees from these federal institutions, but also some money through various forms of scholarships, smaller caches of money through departments. So the second year of my master's was funded by the department after the Shirk funding, which is one year, uh, was finished. And then I received at the PhD level various kind of travel scholarships. So most departments have some money available for students to do some of those additional necessary aspects of their degree, whether it's travel for conferences or research or things like that. But I think the big the big thing is to just try to educate yourself on all the available scholarships. And you always hear kind of student advisors say there are caches of money that go unused year to year because no one is applying for them. And sometimes those are scholarships that are very specific to a certain student, whatever, you know, someone's donated a, a cache of money for a very specific demographic of student that rarely gets applied for and people are trying to fill it. I've seen ones like in my program, I did economics degree and there was one that uh, the U of S for single moms in the program. And obviously I didn't qualify for that one, but there are a lot out there that are very specific. And as a result, the applicant base has to be quite small. And so just look around for, for all of those ones where you might fit and there might be a decent chance of you getting some money there. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's a barrier to applying because it does take time, you know, especially with these big awards, you want to take, I would say a few months to try to really prepare a well, well well-written and well thought out proposal. And often those require you to talk about your research. So you want to you know, maybe develop some of your thoughts on that, especially if you're going into the program, you kind of, I've had uh, friends and colleagues kind of say, you know, I I don't know what to say, you know, I'm not in the program yet, but you kind of got to fake it till you make it in some way, make it seem like you're further down the road than you are. But once you get past that barrier and and you just apply for it, you know, there's no no shame in applying for something and not coming back, but always throwing in that application for a scholar. You never know, there may be two applicants and you may fit the bill of what the committee that's selecting the award winner is uh, looking for. So yeah, just always throw in an application if you can and, and be creative and try to, you know, do some searching for some of those smaller awards, you know, a thousand dollars here, a thousand dollars there makes a big difference. Right. So scholarships and government funding, those have to be the largest lump sum ways to help out with your post-grad costs. So your living expenses, you know, doing a master's and a PhD, it's it's tough to work at the same time. So there's is there an opportunity to work, say, within the program or doing, you mentioned TA work. Uh, can you describe that process and, and what your experience was? Yeah. So I didn't uh, do any teaching during my master's degree, but during my PhD, I've done, I've t- worked as a TA every year. And usually, you know, the how each department selects their TAs will change, but I'd say in most grad programs, there's an opportunity to do some teaching of, of some sort. And I think that either being a TA or being a research assistant are probably the most seamless ways to kind of within your department and within your program to make a bit of extra money. And so often profs will have funds to fund researchers 
And, you know, that's that's one option if you don't want to go the TA route, but both should be relatively seamless within your program and within your department that you're in to, you know, to get some extra work and some extra cash. But also it's usually these departments are set up to, you know, that's the easiest way to make to work on the side. You know, you could get any, any number of jobs, but this is kind of usually embedded within the program and often embedded within the funding. You know, maybe you'll get some of your funding will be linked to TA, TA responsibilities. Right. Okay. So in, in a way you can kind of get paid to stay, you know, keep a foot in the program and, and learn a little bit more. Yeah. Teaching isn't exactly the same as writing your thesis, but it's gotta be nice to be able to stay in there and you don't have to bartend or whatever. Right. Exactly. It's all part of the same process. So maybe you're, if you're reading for a class you're TAing for, you're reading something that's maybe not immediately relevant to your, your thesis, but you are, you're still kind of in that realm and you're always building knowledge that, that could be relevant at some point. And I've, my experience has been that profs are very cognizant of that, trying to make an overlap for you so that there's some mutual benefit from the work you're doing, especially if you're a research assistant. Right. So you're currently a PhD candidate at McGill in Canadian history specifically? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So how is your PhD different in terms of cost and maybe your ability to work during your PhD versus your master's? Is it more of a grind or is it a little bit more, you know, you decide how long it takes you to do it? Or can you describe the differences between the two? Yeah, I'd say the major difference is that it's just a longer process. So you need more funding over a longer time. Like I think the average history PhD takes five or six years. So you just need to be planning for additional years of funding and often, you know, the, the shirk funding or some of these federal, federal, uh, funds, they, they are accounting for that. So they give multiple years of funding as well. And usually the department also has longer offers for funding, but still it often, you know, students often take longer than the funding or the funding they have. So you just need to be kind of planning ahead. So I've been planning ahead and trying to save a bit of extra money from that funding I got and from previously to ensure that I have some funds in case I take a bit longer than I'm expecting. Right. So an undergrad degree is typically four years. A PhD is essentially however long it takes you to finish it. Is that right? Uh, yeah, basically. I mean, it's so self-directed that it could take three years in some cases, but it could take seven, eight, nine years in, in certain cases. And then the funding is pretty well fixed it sounds like and so it's your job to understand how much you're being funded for and and what you need to offset some of those costs yeah so i'd say you'd get a fixed a fixed offer so you'd know up front kind of the major the major lumps of funding you're going to get and usually it's maybe four or five years of funding and then there may be other funding through the department or things like that but it's not quite as set in stone so you have to just be i think planning ahead for all possibilities and that at least that's what i've tried to do and, you know, when that initial kind of funding runs out, you need to have contingency plans and, and make sure you can support yourself through that. Uh, obviously, student student loans is an option at that point. But if you can avoid that by maybe being ahead of the game, asking the department what they would suggest or, you know, being creative, looking at jobs outside of the institution to start start working in a more professional setting as you're finishing is another option as well. Oh, interesting. So since the costs of a PhD and a master's program are higher than undergrad, the employment prospects aren't always completely obvious, like a professional program might be. And because it's kind of a free study program where you 
you determine how long it'll take you to do it in a way. What are some of the ways that people have gotten themselves in trouble? And do you have any tips for people to stay out of financial trouble when going through post-grad programs? Right. I think the biggest thing I would suggest is just to make sure that there's funding in place initially for your program. A lot of people particularly go through master's programs without any funding in place, which, which is fine. But I think when you're doing this extra schooling and there is money out there in, in lots of cases and there's funding, funding available, I think that it's from my perspective, I wouldn't pursue one of these degrees without some kind of funding package available from the departments. So then if you go a bit longer, you can maybe support yourself using student loans or working on the side, but you want that initial chunk of time set aside with funding for you to really focus on that degree because they are intensive degrees and they take can take a long time. Right. So just kind of like anything when it comes to money, it requires a measure of discipline to make sure that you don't get in trouble in the first place. Right. So not extending your studies beyond what you probably should, because maybe there's a freedom is the trouble spot for you where it's, it's too easy to put things off. I, I don't suspect overspending grant money is, is a typical problem, but just maybe a lack of understanding of the funding that's available and things like that. Okay, Sam, uh, anything for final words or final thoughts on postgrad programs and uh, your finances? Yeah. The last, the thing I'd like to end with, I think is just, I certainly want to encourage people to still pursue these degrees. They can be very rewarding. And especially if you're interested in, in pursuing them, I, I don't want to dissuade anyone from doing that. Just taking the time in that year, year and a half before you're applying, as you're applying for and before you enter those programs to inform yourself about the money that is available and the best you know funding packages you can get. And yeah, putting in those applications for as many scholarships as possible so that you're able to fund uh, as much of your program as you can. Perfect. Thanks so much for joining me today, Sam. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Evan. Thanks for joining me today on the Canadian Money Roadmap Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd really appreciate if you left me a review on Apple Podcasts with your biggest takeaway. If you have questions or ideas for topics you'd like me to discuss on future episodes, please reach out via my contact info in the show notes. This podcast is intended to be educational in nature, and you should always consult your financial, tax, and legal advisors before making changes to your financial plan. Any rates of return discussed are historical or hypothetical and are to be used for educational purposes only. Evan Neufeld is a qualified associate financial planner and registered investment fund advisor. Mutual funds are provided through Sterling Mutuals, Inc.